Well, it's a pet care day on the Larry Mueller Show. Thanks for joining us. I'm Larry Mueller. We're talking about raising a puppy today. And our guest is veterinarian Dr. Marty Greer. She founded Veterinary Village as a small animal clinic in Lamira, where she specializes in canine pediatrics and reproduction. And uh, you know what? Maybe you've got a new young dog. Maybe you're thinking about getting one. Are you, <laughs> if you've got one, are you struggling with finding uh, maybe the right food? Wondering uh, when you should take them for a vet visit? Questions, give a call. The number is 800 642 It's 1-800-642-1234. Or send an email to ideas at wpr.org, ideas at wpr.org. Dr. Marty Greer, welcome back. Good to have you with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You wrote a book about puppies in 2020. It's called Your Pandemic Puppy. Yes. <laughs> Did the pandemic inspire it, or was it something else? Well, I was planning on writing a book more about differences in generation generational ownership than I was about the pandemic puppy because we do see differences in how boomers treat their dogs than Gen Z's than Gen Xers than millennials. They're all a little bit different in how they approach obtaining a dog, approach um, maintaining the dog, the health care, those kinds of things. So I was initially planning to do that. And when I spoke to the publisher, she said, no, 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 we're going to do this other book, the Pandemic Puppy book, first. <laughs> and it was really at the very beginning of, of uh, the pandemic. It was basically in March of 2020 uh, when this was inspired because I didn't have enough to do. Uh, our veterinary clinics were restricted in what we were allowed to do for appointments, and my exam materials um, that I hand out to clients when they come in with a new puppy were outdated. So I'm like, oh, I'll just do some writing. And it turned into this. <laughs> well, you know, uh, getting a new puppy or deciding to get one can be really exciting, but it's not for everybody. What, what should you know about the responsibility of raising a very young dog? Sure. So the first thing that I think people need to look at is what the life expectancy of the dog is and what your plans look like 10, 15, 18 years down the road. And I think that's really important that you think about your lifestyle, how that may change, your physical abilities may change as, as our populations are aging. Uh, we find that those people are getting typically smaller dogs or downsizing. They may not eliminate dogs from their lives, although sometimes they do because they feel like, well, the kids are gone. We don't want to be tied down anymore. So they may not want to have another dog or they may not want to have a young dog. But if you're thinking about getting a young dog, what does life look like 15 years out? Are your kids going to be grown? Are you going to be so physically able to move a 90 or 100-pound dog around if they have a health problem and can't get up on their own? So I think that um, predictability of what you want that dog to be and what you want your lifestyle to look like is really important. Yeah, I would certainly agree with that. Lou in Ashland has a question relating to this, so let's go there. Hi, Lou. Wow. Fantastic. Thank you for allowing me to come on and, and ask my question. We have two male puppies from the same litter. Um, they're going to, uh, well, my son, uh, he has a puppy, and then his friend, who we need to keep the puppy at our house, um, he'll eventually take on that puppy. He's not able to at his house. Um, my question is aggressiveness. How much is okay and how much is too much? You mean when they're roughhousing, when they're playing with each other? Oh, yes, because uh -huh. they, uh, I have not seen moves like this since WWE. 
you know, one will come flying off the couch and grab the other by the neck. And I'm, I'm serious. It, it can get pretty hair raising and we have to step in and say, okay, time out one each to each kennel. And, you know, it gets our blood pressure up. So if they're pretty equal in size and in age, so if they're litter mates and they're fairly equally matched, they're probably not going to hurt each other much. There may be a lot of noise and it can sound really awful, but most of the time they're not going to cause any harm to one another. Um, that's just part of how puppies typically play. And there is a lot of, there is a lot of growling and rolling and, and noise that comes out of that situation. But if they're evenly matched for size, they're probably going to be fine. And they've grown up together. So they kind of know each other's limits when they get to the point that they're too rough, then one is going to, you know, give out a shout or a little bit of a whine or a whimper and sulk away. And that's a pretty good indication to the other puppy that they have overstepped. And that's, that's one of the great joys of having two puppies at the same time is that they can teach each other things that you can't teach them. And they will learn by that kind of experience when enough is enough and too much is too much. And then all their energy is not taken out on you with biting your fingers and your hands and expecting you to keep them exercised. <laughs> Lou, there you go. Thank you so much for calling. You can join in to 800-642-1234. What about bringing, and I was, here's Lou who brought two puppies into the home. Any tips on bringing a puppy into a home that, maybe one that already has an adult dog? Right, and I, I've actually gone over that this morning in our exam room as I have a client with a 15-year-old male dog, and she got a new puppy, and brilliantly, she got a female puppy. And the opposite sex typically turns out to be the best relationship, is if you have a boy, you get a girl. If you have a girl, you get a boy. And that seems to create the, the strongest bonds and the best relationships instead of the competition of two boys or two girls at the same time. Now, Lou has two boys, but they're not going to live in the same household long term that's just as puppies but i typically will alternate uh sexes when i'm getting another dog um especially when there's an older one because it's really hard on the older dog to have a puppy come in that's that's um trying to dominate them and be difficult so if you got a male bring in a female and i i i know um from uh, dr patricia mcconnell that she said that uh the worst are sometimes you have two females Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, they can be really brutal. And sometimes those fights are the worst ones that you'll ever see at a veterinary clinic is two girls, girl on girl. Um, and she's absolutely correct about that. The males have a little bit of aggression, but the females, when they're really upset with each other, it can be downright dangerous. Yeah. What are some medical issues that are common in puppies and, and how you, can you look out for them? Mm. Another great question. A lot of puppies will have intestinal parasites, so we see a lot of those. Roundworms and hookworms, we don't see as much as we used to. Remember the worms that you used to see? You'd give a puppy a dewormer, and you'd see roundworm pass in the stool. Those are the ones that look like spaghetti. A lot of those are pretty well controlled at this point. We don't see as many. But coccidia and giardia, which are both one-celled parasites, are very common, especially in any dog that comes from a larger group of dogs. So shelters, rescues, breeders. Um, humane societies, almost all of those puppies have one parasite or another. And it's really frustrating for clients because they're hard to eliminate in the, in the facility. So it's not that these places are unkept or dirty. It just, these organisms live in the soil and it's almost impossible for the facilities to eliminate them. Uh, so it, it, it's frequent to have those. And then as a result, some soft stools, diarrhea, 
uh, sometimes vomiting, but mostly diarrhea. And so it's really hard to control those. And, and the tests have gotten so much better, especially for Giardia, that even after the Giardia is gone, we'll still see that test show up positive. And that's very frustrating for new owners because they feel like they have this puppy that came without the kind of preventive care that they should have. So I, I'd say parasites and diarrhea are number one, hands down. And get them to a vet. Absolutely. There's testing that we can do. Some of the vet clinics, ours included, we send the stool samples out now because there's a whole panel of tests that we can run more effectively at a reference lab than we can in our own hospitals. So we recommend sending out stool samples and then treating the puppies accordingly based on what parasites are seen on those fecal analyses. So it's worth taking a stool sample in. Uh, and, of course, as soon as you get a new puppy, you want to make sure that you have an appointment at the veterinary clinic as soon as possible. Most breeders and rescues want you to have those um, appointments within usually 72 hours of the time you get the dog. And with the shortages that we have in staff right now, that can be a bit of a trick. So if you're predicting that you're getting a new dog, go ahead and call for an appointment as soon as you have a date to pick that puppy up so that you can get them straight in. Let's talk about uh, fixing up the house. I mean, a, a little puppy, you wouldn't <laughs> think they'd cause much damage or many problems, but uh, how do you get oh, your yeah. home ready for one? Well, that's, a, that's, again, a really excellent question. And I'm old enough that I still remember the odd couple, the Felix and Oscar yes. show. Back, you remember? Yep. With Felix being the very tidy one and Oscar being the really messy one. And uh, there's a trainer in Milwaukee that says, don't let your house be like Oscar's. Let it be like Felix's. So the first thing you want to do is try to puppy-proof as much as possible. So that means getting all the stuff off the floor that the puppy shouldn't be picking up rubber bands and twist ties and paper clips and the things that you drop and don't really think much about. Medications, oh, gosh, that's a big problem. You stand you know, in the kitchen taking your pills, and if you drop one on the floor, you can bet that puppy's going to swoop in and try to consume it as quickly as possible. So be careful how you handle your meds. And then, of course, electric cords are a big concern. Obviously, you don't want your shoes and your socks and your backpacks chewed up, but electric cords are a big risk. So you want to make sure that those are either secured uh, where they're behind some piece of furniture or someplace the puppy can't get to it, or they make really nice corrugated cord covers. Because, you know, back in the day, we used to have one or two electrical outlets in a room, but now we have phones and computers and all kinds of other devices that are plugged in. So the cords are multiplied in quantity and so have the electrical outlets and the extension cords so make sure that you're getting extension cords that are durable and make sure that you're covering those with that corrugated tubing it just comes in a spool you can buy it online you can buy it at the store the electronics department and cover your cord so that it's a lot more difficult for the puppy to chew into that cord that's a very dangerous thing for puppies to do is is they can become electrocuted by biting an electric cord has that actually happened mm, yes yeah <laughs> It does happen, and it's pretty tragic when it occurs. So, And, of course, you can have the secondary electrical shock as well. So if you're trying to get the puppy or the cat, the kitten off of it, then the person that's handling that pet can be injured as well. So you want to be very, very careful with those things. I know it sounds a little far-fetched, but we see these, uh, unfortunately, more often than we would like. So let's take a look at, uh, let's say there's an area of the house I don't want the puppy in. Uh, and gating is uh, the maybe mm -hmm. the answer. What type of gate is best for blocking off certain areas of the house? And with people's homes having those wider doorways, it's a lot more difficult to put up a baby gate. Baby gates are great if they fit across your doorway, but many times they don't. And there's a device called an exercise pen. For short, it's called an X-Pen. 
like the letter X, mm-hmm. and you can buy them at the farm stores, you can buy them online, you can buy them on Amazon or Chewy or whoever, and they are a marvelous device. A lot of uh, people that show dogs and breed dogs know about them, but for some reason, a lot of our people that are pet dog owners are not aware of these, and they're wonderful. They're like a portable playpen for a dog. So you can span it, kind of zigzag it across a wide doorway that's too wide for the typical baby gate to fit across. You can take them with you if you travel. So if you go to a friend's house or a family's house, you fold it down, pop it in your car, take it along. When you get there, you unfold it, you set it up. You can use them outside in the yard. So you've got a little play area in the yard outdoors. You can use them in the kitchen. You can use them across doorways. They're wonderful devices, and I really wish more people knew about them. They run under $100. They're unbelievably handy. They come in metal. They come in plastic, just depending on how flat you want it to fold and how heavy you want it to be and how big you want it to be. They make them really tall for even really tall dogs. So they are absolutely phenomenal devices. And so it's just called an X-Pen or an exercise pen, and I don't think enough pet people use them. How about um, I'm thinking about my sofa which I paid mm-hmm. a fair amount of money for. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you did. Uh, and, you know, I don't want my puppy, uh, if I had one, chewing on that sofa or any of the other furniture, for that matter. How do, how do you keep your puppy from chewing on furniture and other belongings? Yeah, and, you know, furniture is now, a lot of it is leather, and so it's like this giant $5,000 chew toy that you just put in your living room. <laughs> And the dogs are very attracted to that leather. It's the fabric they'll still chew up, but I don't know. Somehow leather just seems to be like, like it's rawhide. So putting an X-Pen across that can be really useful. So you just put it, like, ring it. Um, there are some collars you can put on to deter dogs from going into places, but I think those are a little harsh, and I typically don't recommend those. So the X-Pens can be really great. And then it takes a while. There are people who are successful in teaching their dogs not to go on the furniture. I don't happen to be one of them. But, uh, you know, I have little dogs, and it's like, oh, yeah, sure, come on up here, and you can sit next to me while I watch TV and work on the computer. It's cool. But a lot of people don't want their dogs on the furniture because they chew on it, because they shed on it, because they can have accidents on it. So I understand the reluctance of people wanting their dogs on the furniture. So this is a great tool to teach the dog not to be on it. My parents used to have a dog that would sneak onto the rocking chair when they would be gone, and they'd walk into the house, and the dog would see them coming and know she wasn't supposed to be on there, so they'd... Walk in, and of course, the chair would be rocking because it was still <laughs> freshly disoccupied. So they'd be like, okay, really? We know you've been doing this. So they, they can be pretty sneaky, but they're not, they're not going to outfox all of you. So I just think that those exercise pens are, are a wonderful device to use to keep the dogs in the areas of the house that are safe. So you can either block off areas you don't want them in or block off areas that you do want them in so that you can control their movements for the house. Talking about uh, raising your new puppy with our guest today, Dr. Marty Greer, veterinarian. She founded Veterinary Village, a small animal clinic in Lamira, Wisconsin. And you can join in with your questions or maybe your experiences with a young puppy. Give us a call. The number is 800-642-1234. Or you can email us, the email address, ideas at wpr.org. Tyler Ditters, our engineer today. Clara Nipert, our producer. I'm Larry Mailer for the Ideas Network. Great to have you along today on the Ideas Network. Larry Mailer here take, taking a look at raising a new puppy with our guest, Dr. Marty Greer, veterinarian who founded Veterinary Village. It's a small animal clinic in Lamira, Wisconsin. 
Again, questions, join in 800-642-1234. Email to ideas at wpr.org. Let's take a call. Tom in Green Bay, thank you for calling. What's on your mind? Well, she was mentioning about uh, puppies and closing things off. Every time I've gotten a new puppy, which has been too often, according to my wife, uh, I've always planned getting the puppy and planned on having at least three, if not five days of vacation so I can watch that puppy every minute uh, to see what it's getting into and what it isn't getting into. Mm -hmm. Because I always remember a trainer who had, he had the national lab, field lab, three times. In one of his books, he said, the first chapter, you bring a puppy into your house, within 24 hours, that puppy probably knows you better than you know yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. So comment on that. I agree. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Unfortunately, a lot of people either don't plan far enough ahead or their planning doesn't work out as well as that. It would be great to have three to five days off. And during COVID, of course, we had a lot of people that switched from working in the office or going to school to being at home. So there was a big transition of dongo to ship that we saw at that point. So it did give people a chance. And that's why I think we saw this boom in puppy ownership was all the excuses that you had before for not getting a puppy because you were gone too much, you weren't able to be home, you weren't able to do some of those things, were gone. So the kids would look at the parents and say, well, we're home now, we'll be home for a long time, let's get a new dog. And so I, I completely agree with you that that's a wonderful way to do it if you can make that work. Um, I would absolutely endorse it, and it might even take more than three to five days to get that really where you want it to be. And we do recommend the use of crates and X-Pens and some of those other uh, tools until the puppy becomes acclimated to the household and you know what they can trust, be trusted to do. Puppies will chew things up. Puppies go potty on the floor. There's a lot of things that can go wrong. So we want to be very careful that we are supervising our dogs. So, yes, three to five days is a wonderful start. I'm wondering, uh, now here's Tom or anybody else for that matter is home and the puppy does something they don't want the puppy to do. What about correcting the puppy or what do you do at a circumstance like that? Sure. And physical punishment, of course, has um, never been really desirable, but it's really changed a lot in the last number of years. With Basically in the last 40 or 50 years since we've had dogs, we've seen a big change in corrections. So if the puppy's going potty on the floor and you can make a sharp noise and interrupt it and have them close their little sphincter and you can pick them up and run them outside, great. Get them out, let them finish when they're outside. But rubbing the puppy's nose in it, um, spanking the puppy, some of those um, previously um, done techniques are pretty much out of favor. And unfortunately, sometimes we reflexively act and so we don't really mean to do it, but Sometimes that's just a a knee-jerk reaction. You've got brand-new white carpet, and the puppy goes on the carpet and goes potty. So a lot of people's knee-jerk reaction is to to punish the puppy. But you don't want to do that. You want to give as much positive reinforcement as you can. So, for instance, housebreaking, when you take the puppy outside, you want to make sure that they have a really delicious food treat the minute that they go from squatting to horizontal. So whether they're urinating or having a stool, you want that food treat in your hand to be right in front of them as soon as they stop going potty so that you reinforce the behavior of going in the yard if you wait until you take them back into the house you've done a great job of reinforcing them for coming indoors which is a lovely thing for them to learn (laughs) but it's not the ultimate 
ultimate goal is to teach them that you want them to your, use the outdoors as their outdoor bathroom, not the indoor bathroom. Indoor bathroom tends to be the extra bedroom, the dining room, the places that you don't tend to go into as often. And puppies learn very quickly that when you're not looking and, you know, you're busy on the computer, on a call, um, making dinner for the family, helping the kids with their homework, watching a TV show, and you, you aren't really focused on them, very quickly they learn that if you're not looking at them, they can just go down the hall around the corner and go potty, and you didn't really notice. And so it becomes a big issue. So we do want to make sure that we keep our puppies close to us so that those things can be prevented, not punished. Yeah. Uh, Terry in Sussex has a question for you. Hi, Terry. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, I recently assisted a friend of mine with whelping 10 puppies, and it brought to mind the thought of a fading puppy. And I don't think she's knowledgeable about it, so I was going to speak with her to watch for the syndrome. And my question is, if you suspect you have a puppy that's fading in your new litter, how much time do you have to respond? Gosh, that's a very short period of time. Uh, fading puppy is more of a description than a diagnosis. A more specific diagnosis is really helpful, but as soon as you see a puppy that's not gaining weight the way they should be, they're off by themselves, they may be chilled, they're not nursing, they're not gaining weight, their urine color is dark, anything that tells you that the puppy isn't getting enough formula, getting enough to eat, nursing, um, getting enough of mom's attention, you really want to try to get veterinary attention as soon as possible. You may only have a few hours between the time that you see something that doesn't seem right and the time that you lose those puppies. They don't have much fat storage. They don't have much glycogen storage in their livers, so they can really fade very quickly. So the sooner you can identify that by careful monitoring the puppies with temperatures twice a day, urine colors twice a day, weight twice a day, and just really close supervision. And the faster you can get in with that list of concerns that you have, the faster your veterinarian can respond to that and support them with fluids, with plasma, with antibiotics, with whatever is appropriate based on what they see. There you go, Terry. Thank you so much for calling uh, another great question there. Uh, Stephen Westby, we'll go to you next. Hi, Steve. Hello. I'm just calling about reinforcing the thought about having electrical cords covered. I had a puppy yes. that I had a puppy that back oh it's been a long time back, but got into a it was a lamp cord that was plugged in and chewed the lamp cord. And mm -hmm. Did not kill the animal, but it was the fact that it was unconscious for about three days. Um, oh my. And, man, and for children to see that sort of thing, it was just horrendous. So just oh, make sure those cords are protected in some manner. Yeah. So, Steve, thank you very much right. for calling. Right. And, at, at, you know, at Christmas, if you're putting up extra lights for the holidays, like right now people are putting up their... Um, decorations for Easter, any of those things that you do that changes anything in the house. Sometimes we don't think about those extra cords. So you might have reinforced that. You may have had the cord covers on for your computer, but then you put a, you know, you just put something in the window that's illuminated, and those puppies find those things instantly. So he's absolutely right. I'm I'm thankful that he didn't lose that dog. That's such a such a near tragedy. For calling, Steve, uh, Jeff in West Bend. Hi, hey, thank thanks you for, for calling. Call. 
Um, I have an eight-month-old Labrador that is notoriously counter-surfing. Um, as soon as we turn our back, <laughs> the food is gone. And I really mm-hmm. don't know how to correct it at this point. Um because he, know, he knows it's bad behavior because he waits until we're not looking, and then you'll hear the plate hit the floor or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I have three young children, so it's kind of hard to keep everything off the counter at all times. I was just wondering if you had any suggestions for that. Well, at my house, that box on the counter that you think is a microwave is actually a food storage box for your puppy so that they can't reach anything else on the counter. So I don't leave any food on the countertops. I put it all in the microwave. Years ago, when my kids were really little, I used to use the oven to put things in. And my um, mother-in-law and my mother came to our home for a birthday party Mm. for my son. And I had put the birthday cake that was already baked and decorated into the oven to keep the dog away from it. And unfortunately, wasn't home when they turned the oven on to make dinner. (laughs) I was at work. So they remaked the cake. It didn't go very well because the little plastic circus animals on the top melted down into the cake. So um, the oven's a good place to store it. The sink, if you need to put dirty dishes in the sink or directly into the dishwasher. And, yes, with young kids, you have to start teaching those kids pretty young to load the dishwasher. So those would be the things that I would suggest doing. There are ways that you can deter the dog from getting on the countertop uh, by setting, um, like, pop cans up there with Uh, coins in them so that if the dog's feet hit the counter that those fall and distract the dog not necessarily to punish them but to distract them and teach them that they're not supposed to do that but you're probably going to have an easier time training your kids than the dog because the dog is not going to train easily Um, he's going to keep doing that for as long as he possibly can (laughs) there you go jeff oh boy what are some safe and appropriate toys for puppies to chew on we, we we didn't get to that, and there's all kinds of toys out there, but what are the best ones? Yeah, and that, that's a, a really important consideration that we're picking safe toys. I usually check them to make sure that they are made in America as much as possible. So chew toys are great uh, for that. Rawhide bones are typically fairly safe. Greenies are very safe. Uh, Kong toys are amazing. Those are the kinds of toys that they look like a snowman, and you can stuff them with peanut butter, with spray cheese, with cream cheese, with any kind of soft cheese, and then put some treats inside those. So those are those are really great tools. A lot of people like the dog puzzles that have become popular recently. My concern with those is they're really not meant to be chew toys, so you really don't want to leave the dog with those unattended. But one of my favorite tricks to keeping dogs occupied for a period of time is to get those little uh, metal muffin tins that have six or 12 openings in them. And you can put yogurt or uh, beef stock or chicken stock or something in there with some of their regular dog food. And this would be to replace their meal, not to add to the meal. So you put that in the freezer and then you've always, so you always want two of them, one that's in the freezer and one that's in the dishwasher so that you've always got one spare and ready to go. So in the morning when you leave to go to work or to school or when you're going to be on a Zoom call or you're going to be um, busy with the kids or whatever it happens to be, that you've got a, a device already ready to go that's going to keep the dog really busy. So instead of them gulping down their dinner in 30 seconds flat, which is what most labs and goldens will do, it'll take them 30 minutes, maybe an hour for those to melt, for them to lick it, for them to eat the whole thing. So it's really not a chew toy, but it's a way to keep them really busy for an extended period of time. Um, I use a lot of those muffin tins, too, with a ginger snap stuck to the bottom with peanut butter, and it's very entertaining. You can put six of those in the muffin tin, and that'll take your dog probably half an hour, so you can get through, like, half a Zoom call with six ginger snaps and a little bit of peanut butter. (laughs) 
<laughs> there you go. I, I, you know, thinking about eating, are there special or are there any specific plants that you should remove from your home if you have a puppy? Yeah, and there's a lot of plants that have some reputation for being toxic. So things like philodendrons, they'll numb their mouth, but it's really not a poisonous plant. Um, National Animal Poison Control has an excellent website. So does Pet Poisons on different kinds of toxic plants. And they're different for cats and dogs. Cats are um, affected by toxins like lilies. Dogs are not. A lot of people think poinsettias are toxic, and they're actually not. They, we don't encourage dogs to eat them, but they're not toxic. So you want to be really careful when you buy a new plant to bring it into the house or if you get a new dog and you bring it in that you want to make sure that the plants in your house or in your landscaping are safe. Things like Japanese yew, very toxic, and lots and lots of people have those on the outside of their homes. So you want to be really cautious with what you're using. And there's so many plants that it's really difficult to keep up with everything. Now with these um, devices that you can use your phone for, you can take a photo of the plant and it'll bring up the image and you can look at that plant look at what the kind of plant is if you don't know what it is called, identify the plant, and then go to the poison control websites and take a look to see if those are toxic for dogs. So I think it's important that people are vigilant when they're putting something new in the landscaping or bringing a new dog in that they have everything secured and safe. We have uh, Sarah in Madison next with a question. Let's go there. Hi, Sarah. Hey, hi there. Can you hear me? Yes, go ahead. Okay. This is so fun because I've never called in. But my question is, um, or my dilemma is, I had I have two siblings, Caton de Tulliers, which I, I'm, an, I'm a, an elderly person and a new dog mom. And I got them as puppies in December, and who does that? But um, anyway, um, I had gotten some good advice to get them trained, to trade them separately, um, and and that that works very well. Now, however, a few years later, I've now moved to an apartment versus like a condo with my own entrance. And these two are just bark, 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 bark all the time. And I'm really struggling because I have to work remotely. I don't know if you have any suggestions for that, but um, I, I really like all of the suggestions that you do have. By the way, they are potty pad trained. Um, if they're smaller dogs, and so that's that's very nice. And um, I started out by keeping them on leash around my waist, a leash around my waist, so that they were just coming with me. Um, mm-hmm. And the freezer treats too, I agree with. But the barking driving you nuts. All and, right. Yeah, and it's probably not just you that you're concerned about. If you're in an apartment, you're concerned about your neighbors as well, uh, because they they'll probably be complaining, and that can be a big issue. So it is very difficult to try to manage that. Uh, if you can figure out what their triggers are, that can be helpful. If you can figure out if there's a, a sound machine or some kind of a radio, TV, something you can turn on so that it eliminates some of the just the outdoor noises that might be triggering their barking, that can be helpful. Like if they see the UPS truck or the garbage truck or the mailman or whatever, that can be helpful to try and just keep them from being overwhelmed by that. Uh, I don't know if they're seeing things out the window, sometimes covering the windows so that they don't see. And they're little dogs. Cotons are not big dogs. So if you can cover the lower part of the windows so they might not be able to see out and see those, you can just take something like aluminum foil tape to the lower part of the window so you don't have to do anything expensive 
to try and keep them from seeing what's going on outside that might be triggering the barking. So those are those are really challenging. Um, I assume is this when you're gone? Is this when you're home? What what is the scenario? Well, it is, um, and you know, actually, I have a sound machine in each room, and then I have this bilateral sound also playing, you know, at a low low thing, so I can be on the computer with my headphones, and they are triggered by um, seeing anybody or hearing anybody outside. I do have the bottom mm-hmm. of my windows covered with like a a cover film from from Kmart or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And so my apartment, too, is right by the main entrance of the building. And so um, people are coming in and out and in and out. And so that or the mailman coming in and out and the insulation. I thought about insulation around the door, perhaps. But Mm -hmm. um, I just wondered if if it's time for a separate dog class for each of them or or if you had any further suggestions. I appreciate it. Yeah. Sure, and dog classes are great if you can teach them a competing behavior, if you can teach them something to do besides bark. So that that's a, a wonderful tool if it works, but it can be a very slow and rigorous process to get there. Uh, so, you know, they do make the electric collars. Um, they do make a bark collar that, that scents um, citronella into their nostrils if they are barking. But, again, that's kind of a negative, and a lot of people – don't really like doing that kind of training with their dogs. So it can be a really difficult challenge to to retrain these guys. Um, and then they feed off of each other, at least at my house. If one dog starts barking, then the whole group starts to bark. So it becomes this bark fest, and it, it's, it's really difficult. So um, short of having more noise so that the dogs aren't hearing the mailman or moving to a less busy corner, and that's not a small task, then it makes it very difficult. You can't really change the patterns of the people that are coming and going in and out of the apartment building. So I don't know if you can better cover it, better better cover the sound up, but it sounds to me like that's that, that a training class is probably going to be your best bet is to teach a competing behavior so they learn to go lay down on a rug and be quiet instead of learning to bark because it does become self-perpetuating. The more one barks, the more the other one barks because, of course, there's that competition between the, the two dogs. Sarah, thank you so much uh, for calling. Appreciate it. Uh, another person wondered, how can you keep your trash can and other items secure from a puppy or maybe even a bigger dog? <laughs> oh, yeah. You have to be really good with those. You need a trash can with a lid that's almost impossible to get off. Uh, put it someplace that the dog can't get to. It is probably the easiest answer is you just don't leave it sitting in the kitchen. You have to have it under a cabinet. And with the cabinet doors, sometimes even have to be secured with childproof locks. Putting the the garbage can outside on the porch instead of in the kitchen, some of those things can make a big difference because dogs will get into everything. We've had clients that can have their dogs lift the toilet seat till they get their own drinks. They run the ice dispenser to get their own ice cubes. (laughs) They'll dump the trash because there's always something yummy in there. And, again, it's it's really a matter of keeping those things secure. So either the lid doesn't come off or you just simply – have to keep it emptied often enough that there's nothing in there that's intriguing. And dogs, you know, when they have 24 hours a day to think of things to do and you spend 10 minutes trying to undo what they're going to do, they have the next 23 hours and 50 minutes to figure out your patterns. Like the gentleman who called earlier, uh, Tom, and said that the dog knows you better than you might know yourself within three to five days. They know your patterns. They know when you put something smelly and delicious into the trash. So they're going to be just hanging out waiting. It's very hard to keep that. Uh, unless you can really secure those um, those trash cans 
Uh, and some dogs even learn to use the ones with the electric eye on them so that when you walk over and the lid goes up automatically, some of the dogs will learn to trigger those too. So they're way smarter than we give them credit for. <laughs> Susan in Wisconsin Dells, it's your turn. Hi, Susan. Hi. My daughter has a three-and-a-half-month-old golden retriever. Uh, she works, and the boys are in school. She has five- and seven-year-old boys. And when everyone comes home, the boys are rambunctious because they've been in school all day, and the dog is rambunctious because it has been cooped up all day. And so it doesn't listen very well. It doesn't, they can't seem to calm it down. It jumps on the furniture. Um, it uh, chews on things, and it's like a no-win situation because everyone has been cooped up all day. So how do you start with a three-and-a-half-month-old dog to train it to calm down well a lot of people use daycares doggy daycares during the day so that the dog has some activity and even if it's not five days a week even if it's two or three days a week it can make a big difference for that dog because a they're getting training when they're at the daycare and b they come home after playing with their doggy friends and having training classes and having all the activity that goes on there so they come home not nearly as rambunctious as you would initially expect because they've had that full day of, of time with activity, both mental and physical activity. The other thing you can do is just plan on as soon as the kids walk in the door that you collar the dog and everybody goes out for a nice walk. And walking a dog slowly is not enough exercise. You might have to take them someplace that they can have some off-leash running time or some other activities. And, you know, in the winter, it's a lot more difficult. We're going to have a little cold weather coming up, but we've had some pretty nice weather. So, Essentially, instead of having the kids come in, get a snack, sit down and start their homework, you may have to just simply put the leash and collar on the dog and grab the kids, bundle them up and head out for, for some outdoor activity so that everybody gets some fresh air and, and comes in a little bit reset and ready to calm down. Puppies have a lot of energy. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes, they sure do, which is one of the great joys of puppies, but it's also one of the great risks is we may not have the amount of energy at the end of our workday as they have at the beginning of their time with us. Yeah, yeah, up for sure. Our guest, Dr. Marty Greer, veterinarian who founded Veterinary Village, a small animal clinic in Lamira, Wisconsin, talking, uh, zeroing in on uh, caring uh, for your new puppy and raising your new puppy. Questions, give us a call. The number is 800 Email to ideas at WPR.org. I'm Larry Mueller for the Ideas Network. Although written in 1982, Stephen B. Oates' prize-winning biography, Let the Trumpets Sound, remains the definitive account of the life of Martin Luther King, Jr. This brilliant examination of the great civil rights icon and the movement he led provides a lasting portrait of a man whose dream shaped American history. Join us for Let the Trumpets Sound today at 1230 on Chapter a Day. Coming up today on Central Time, do we need a constitutional amendment guaranteeing the right to vote in the United States? An elections expert makes the case that an amendment could answer a lot of our arguments about voting rights and elections. That's today on Central Time. 
I'm Lila from the fundraising team here at Wisconsin Public Radio. On-air fundraising is important. So is the news, stories, and music that keep us informed and connected. That's why we're trying something new. We're limiting our winter member drive to a single day later this month. And we're asking you to help us meet our fundraising goal with less interruptions to the programs you value. It's only possible with your support now at WPR.org slash donate. Support for WPR comes from Wellersheim Winery and Distillery and Kerber Rose. Businesses play an important role in our communities and in funding quality news, talk, and music on WPR. Join at WPR.org sponsor. Wisconsin Public Radio covers the state. You can get the latest news from WPR delivered right to your email with WPR's news newsletters. Find out how to subscribe by going to WPR.org. You'll never miss a story with WPR's newsletter. Taking a look at raising a puppy, and we've dealt with a few uh, <laughs> a few older animals as well, but trying to zero in a bit on raising a, a young animal, a young puppy, with our guest today, Dr. Marty Greer. She founded Veterinary Village, a small animal clinic in Lamira, Wisconsin. Veterinary Village. Questions, give a call at 800-642-1234. Email to ideas at wpr.org. And Rick in Pewaukee has a question for you, uh, Dr. Greer. Hi, Rick. Hi. Well, thank, thank you so much for the show. Um, we re- rescued a pup from Dodge County Humane Society, and um, she got faded at a very young age. And um, we're just wondering if there's any side effects to that because we're having a very hard time with the potty training. And she's had two UTI infections already. Dear. Yes, and there can be some side effects. UTIs, uh, urinary tract infections, and urinary incontinence can certainly be some of those. Uh, what kind of dog is she? What, how big is she? She is um, a little terrier mix. We're thinking a border terrier. Okay, so wiry coat. Yep. Okay, so have you seen puppy vaginitis? Has she got any uh, vaginal discharge, or does it seem to just be the urinary issue? It just seems to be the urinary issue. Okay. So, yes, some of these puppies do end up with UTIs. Uh, Probiotics can really be helpful. So if you can use a probiotic, there's plenty of good ones on the market. Uh, Purina makes one called Fortiflora. Proviable makes one. Um, So there's there's some really good ones on the market. Those can really help because we're getting the right bacteria into her system. Uh, making sure that she's clean before she goes to bed at night. So sometimes using baby wipes around her um, vaginal area can be really helpful as well. And uh, there are definitely side effects to that young spaying and neutering. Now, I understand why the shelters do it, because they don't want you coming back with her pregnant and then having to deal with her puppies. But there are some risks to that. And um, there's some orthopedic risks, there's some cancer risks, and there's certainly obesity and urinary issues. So it can be really difficult, but it may just be that she hasn't quite figured out housebreaking as well. So uh, many times you just need to kind of reset the whole process and say, okay, we can't just open the door and let her out. We can't just take her out every four hours. We may have to take her out more often. We may need to get those food treats out in the yard so that she gets a a treat for 
urinating in the yard immediately after she's done urinating, not for coming back in the house, but for urinating in the yard. So basically, you just need to kind of start that whole housebreaking process over, even though it seems like she should be old enough. Uh, I had a client in this morning who's taught her dog to use the doorbell. They put a bell at the door. Uh, One of them is electronic at one door, and the other one is just a regular little jingle bell. And so the dog can hit that and ask to go out. So there are some training techniques that you can use. So essentially, no matter how old a puppy she is, you just need to treat her as if she knows nothing about housebreaking and start from scratch and just make sure that those treats are out in the yard and you're going with her and standing out there long enough for her to have a chance to urinate as many times as she needs to. Rick, there you go. Thank you so much uh, for calling. Dennis in Waukesha will go to you now. Hi, Dennis. Good morning. Morning. Uh, my uh, dogs are not puppies any longer. They were puppies when we got them together. One was a few months older than the other. They're probably both weighing in the 60-pound range right now. And periodically throughout the summer, last summer, they fought with each other. And I thought I had corrected a bit of that because all winter long they hadn't, and I've been taking them to daycare once a week. Uh, the other day, it was uh, a couple weeks, a week ago now, they uh, saw somebody walking on the street with a dog that wasn't on leash, and they both went after each other, and they've injured each other kind of bad each time. I've tried numerous things. I just don't know where to go next. Wow. Yeah, that's really hard. And they do tend to get into a bit of a frenzy, and that's when things tend to erupt. Are they male, female, spayed, neutered? What do you have? They're both female. Um, they're mm-hmm. both spayed. Um, they're One's a very brunt kind of dog. It's a German Shepherd. Uh, the other one is a little larger, and she's a mix. And actually, you know, they were – they've – been together now for quite a few years about three years i introduced Mm -hmm. another dog that's about 40 pounds two years ago that didn't seem to be a problem at all Hmm. oh well that's good that's good but when resources are limited when things get out of hand when things get exciting that's when those kinds of things blow up Uh, when you're going to have dog fights they are frequently in the doorway when it's a narrow area for dogs to go through or when they perceive that there's limited resources so for some reason this other dog must have triggered something that made them feel like they need to be competitive or or um, competitive with each other so that's really tough and you don't want these girls hurting each other because as we mentioned earlier in the program girl-on-girl fights can be the worst they they can be far worse than boy-on-boy fights And typically boy and girl fights don't happen nearly as often. So when you have multiple female dogs in the house, that that frequently is the issue. So, you know, other than just trying to keep those emotional events from becoming an issue, you're going to have to either keep them distracted if you see it starting to happen. If you're out on a walk and you see it happening, that there's a dog coming, you you can turn and go the other way. You can distract him. You can can do some things. If you see out through the window that this is going to become an issue, then you may have to keep the window covered or simply teach them, uh, like I said earlier, a behavior that competes with the behaviors of fighting with each other. So that's hard to do because they get emotional and they get in a frenzy, and it can be very difficult to call them off once they become um, agitated. So it can be hard. If you have really frequent problems with it, you should probably talk to your veterinarian about medication to reduce those um, 
bits of anxiety that you're seeing. But oftentimes, if they're only happening a couple of times a year, that's too infrequent for you to consider lifetime medication. So um, you may simply have to prevent their opportunity to see those things happening. Good luck, Dennis. Thank you very much for calling. Dave called, uh, couldn't stay with us. He plans on getting a puppy in June, concerned about Lyme's disease these days. Oh, yeah. Dave had a, yeah, he had an older dog that suffered from it. What's your recommendation yeah. to prevent that in puppies? Sure. And there are great tick and flea preventives that we have on the market that can be used as early as eight weeks of age and four pounds. So very young, we can start our puppies on those preventives. There are the orals. There are four oral medications, Brevectone, Nexgard, Cradelio, and Simperica are the four that we can give orally. There's a lot of topicals. Those are the liquids that you put over their shoulders. There's some collars that work much more effectively than the old flea and tick collars used to. So we have those three as preventives to keep the ticks off of the dogs. And, of course, if the dogs aren't bringing them into our house, that helps keep them off of us because nobody wants to come in and find a tick on themselves that the dog brought in, and that happens. Um, I got one last year from a dog, so nobody wants that to happen. And then, of course, we can vaccinate for Lyme disease. So while vaccinations for Lyme disease only help prevent Lyme disease, they don't prevent the other tick-borne diseases or the ticks themselves, it's still another great tool to use. So as soon as the puppy is old enough to be vaccinated, you can start that vaccine series keeping your yard trimmed so that there aren't um, areas of long, tall grass can be helpful as well. Um, some people are comfortable treating the yard for ticks. Other people are not, depending on what um, your preferences are for how you care for your yard. Um, ticks don't fall out of trees, but they do hang out in long grass. And even on days that are 40 degrees and warmer, even in the winter, we can have tick problems. So if you're in Wisconsin, your dog is at risk of developing Lyme disease, anaplasmosis, ehrlichia, and probably some other tick-borne diseases that we don't even know about. So you're very smart to be proactive in getting the puppy on appropriate preventives and talk about vaccinations with your veterinarian if that's appropriate for your dog. What about nutrition for a young uh, puppy? What's, uh, what's your advice for choosing the right kind of or brand of food for your dog? Mm -hmm. Right. And there's so many on the market. It can be really confusing. Uh, when I go to the store, it, it's almost overwhelming when you see how much is out there. So our general recommendations are going to be to stick to the big three companies that do feeding trials. And those are going to be Hills, Purina, and Royal Canin, and Imes, Yukonuba. So many of the smaller companies don't do feeding trials. You can look on the packaging and see what they have for certification. There's AFCO, which is basically a chemical test, and then there's feeding trials where they actually feed the food to dogs to make sure that it's not just an analyzed by a chemical analysis that it's nutritionally complete, but they actually do feeding trials. Almost every package of dog food has on it a phone number, maybe an 800 number or an email address. Contact the pet food company if there's one you're particularly fond of. Communicate with them. See if they have a veterinary nutritionist on staff. See if they do feeding trials. Do they feed it to puppies? We recommend a puppy diet for puppies and then an adult diet for adult dogs. So I think those are really good questions. The best website that I'm aware of that gives you the information that you need is the World Small Animal Veterinary Association, WSAVA, World Small Animal Veterinary Association. And on there, there's a list of all the questions that you should be asking your pet food manufacturer. So if it doesn't tell you on the packaging or on the website the information you're looking for, contact the company, 
go through that information. Um, a lot of homemade diets are popular right now, and the problem is that most of the time we start off with a recipe that gives us a well-balanced diet, but within a couple of times that we make up the batch of the, the homemade food or raw meat diets, we've drifted away from the original recipe, and so we may not have a nutritionally complete diet. We may have a diet that's got bacteria and parasites in it. So we really do recommend sticking with those three big manufacturers and using a prepared diet, not a not a raw meat diet because of the risks of parasites to you and the bacteria and, and parasite risks to your family as well. Dr. Marty Greer, our guest today, veterinarian who founded Veterinary Village, a small animal clinic in Lamira, Wisconsin. And uh, she specializes in canine pediatrics and reproduction. Great to have her with us. And she'll be with us up until 1230 today. Questions for her? Give a call. The number is 800-642-1234. Email to ideas at WPR.org. We'll take a quick look at the news, find out what else is in store for us, and then we'll be back. I'm Larry Mailer for the Ideas Network. Taking a look at pet care on the show today. Thanks for being with us. Our guest, Larry, I'm, by the way, I'm Larry Mueller, and our guest is Dr. Marty Greer, a veterinarian who specializes in canine pediatrics and reproduction. Dr. Greer founded Veterinary Village, a small animal clinic in Lamira, Wisconsin. So give us your puppy questions. We'll also, uh, we'll take a few general pet questions as well. The number is 800 642 Email to ideas at WPR.org. Uh, Jerry in Sun Prairie, we'll go to you. Th- Jerry, thank you for calling. Yes, hi, Larry. Uh, i got two questions. One, I have a puppy that's five months old. Uh, he's a cockapoo. And, uh, and he has a tendency, he wants to jump in the back of people's legs as a walk and, you know, in that room. I was wondering how to control that. And the second question was, you know, I can take him out for a walk and I've got him on a leash or something. He walks really good. You know, we go for long walks and that. But sometimes all of a sudden he'll just go like wild. He'll run back and forth one way and one to the other, you know, and he's jumping and everything else. So I don't know how to control that. Is is, that puppy puppy behavior or what all right jerry and and those are those are really good um points a lot of times when we're walking our dogs we're walking at our pace and not at the dog's pace so they have a lot more energy they're a lot faster they're uh, four-wheel drive instead of two-wheel drive so they're they're down and about and our pace may just be too slow and too boring so that might be where you're seeing that back and forth running wildly. So there's a couple things you can do. One is you can try to find some place that you can take him that is safe for him to be off leash. And that doesn't always come easily. You need to find somewhere that's fenced, secure, and that there aren't going to be other dogs that could be dangerous to him. So dog parks can can sometimes have their risks with them. They can be great places, but they can also have some risks. So if you can find a dog park that has a limited number of dogs at the time that you're available to take him there, that can be really useful. 
because you can unleash him and just let him tear it up because he needs that kind of free all-out run if you can provide it. If you don't have that in your own yard fenced, then you might have to do it on a long line, which is like a, a lunge line for a horse, like a 20-foot lead that's lightweight enough that you can put it on, and he can just run back and forth and run back, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth to burn up some energy. As far as the, the mounting the back of somebody's leg when they're um, standing or walking, that is pretty normal um, behavior for a dog that's trying to understand their hierarchy. I know Patricia McConnell used to talk a lot about dominance and hierarchy and those things, and a lot of those words have changed in how we look at them and how we use them in dogs. So he's probably just trying to either see them better because he's short, he's little, or he's trying to um, get to have a little bit higher status. So that can require just some discipline that you have him on a leash and you pull him off and you teach him not to do that behavior. It's a lot easier when they come to your front because you can kind of lean into them. And if you lean forward, you don't have to put your knee up. You don't have to knock them off. You don't have to do anything that's um, potentially hurtful to the dog. But if you lean toward them, they'll oftentimes stop doing that. So if he comes up behind somebody, if they can turn and face him and then just kind of hover over him, a lot of dogs will back off because that's a behavior that they don't, they don't want a person leaning over them and, and doing that. So those would be my suggestions is if you don't have an offline or an off-leash area that you can take them, that you go to the farm store or the hardware store and get a long line with a clasp on it and just make a 20-foot or 20 or 30-foot leash that he can just, just run and run and run and run and run and be safe, not out into the street, not out in, into the neighbor's yard, but he can be safe and you can get him better exercise because you're boring. I hate to tell you that, Jerry, but you're boring. <laughs> there you go, Jerry. You're not the only one, by the way, Jerry. <laughs> most Most of us are. Oh, man. <laughs> Mary in Sturgeon Bay, uh, your turn. Hi, Mary. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. What's on your mind? Well, I've been feeding my dogs Purina Pro Plan for a long time, and I know that there's a lot of stuff on the Internet now about Purina Pro Plan is bad, and um, they're investigating it. People are investigating it, but it doesn't seem like the FDA has come out with anything or um, Purina themselves. And I'm just wondering what your guest thinks about that. Sure. And I actually do um, speak for Purina, so I want to be very clear about that. I speak for some of the pet food companies, and that's one of them. And they have been very carefully investigating these things. They're probably not saying much outwardly, but I had some private communication with them, and at this point, anything can happen. I mean, anybody can put anything they want on the Internet. And if you look at the number of dogs in the country or in, in our population, there are millions of dogs. And at any given time, there's dogs that get sick, dogs that are elderly, dogs that get into health problems. And, of course, people want to point the finger at food, at medications, at a lot of things that may not actually be relevant. So at this point, if Purina thought that there was a concern, they would be doing a, a recall. We've seen recalls happen on the pet food industry when there have been problems with melamine or with bacterial contamination or, or salmonella or some of those things. So I think if uh, Purina is not in the business of causing harm to dogs, as are any of the pet food companies, they're all vested in keeping our dogs and cats as healthy as possible. So I, I honestly believe that 
you can put anything up on the Internet, and I wouldn't necessarily believe it to be true, particularly if you're feeding a bag of food, you're not having any problems with it, and everything is going well. If you have a concern, you can always switch to one of the other big pet food companies. But like I said, I typically stick with the Hills, Purina, and the Royal Canaan lines of food because they have the largest number of nutritionists. They have the largest amount of research. They do feeding trials. They're very careful with their foods. And we can't say that about all the pet food companies. You get into the smaller ones and they simply cannot afford to do some of the feeding trials themselves or some of the quality control that the larger companies can do. So I would... I would have faith in Purina unless you're specifically seeing a problem with your pet. Mary, good luck. Thank you very much for calling. David and Phillips will go to you next. Hi, David. Hello. Um, I, I, I rescued a, an 11-month-old uh, dog up here, and uh, he's, uh, what the shelter says, he's a uh, Oh, uh, Nuts, where you're breaking up. I'm sorry, David. David's question was about a big rescue puppy. He's way high energy and wonder. Sometimes he plays too hard with the other dog they've got. Uh, mm-hmm. Anyway, I'm sure you've encountered that, uh, oh, Dr. Yeah. Greer. Right, and we do want to protect the other dog in the household, so it's it's important that the, the big high-energy 11-month-old male puppy gets a place to burn up some energy without causing any harm. So, again, getting them out, getting them some specific exercise themselves and not necessarily taking all the dogs with you when you go. Um, you live way far up north. I'm hoping that there's some place up there that you can find that he can get some off-leash running um, or some lunge line running so that he's got a place to burn up some energy and that you can protect the other dog because it's important that the older dog in the household not become a victim to this guy's over-enthusiastic energy, which he doesn't mean to hurt anybody, but he just probably doesn't know his own size. Thanks, David. Uh, Good luck. Appreciate your call. You know, we mentioned uh, nutrition a a little bit, uh, but we we didn't mention water. And I'm wondering how much water should, Mm. like, a puppy consume every day? Yeah. And water is probably the most important nutrient that we take in, and oftentimes we don't really think about it. So... I like to give them as basically the access to water that they want so that they are well hydrated, so that they learn limitations. It's really interesting to watch dogs drink because when they drink, they flip their tongue underneath and the water kind of flings around. And so it can be really messy with some dogs, especially if they've got long ears or long beards, that kind of thing. So I like to give them as much free access to water as possible. But if you're having difficulty in the evening with housebreaking, Um, that the puppy can't sleep through the night, then I do start restricting water at around 8 o'clock at night or depending on what time you go to bed, a couple of hours before you go to bed so that everybody gets a full night's sleep. But, yes, we should have fresh water for our dogs. The bulls should be washed on a daily basis. Mildew um, uh, films build up in the water bowls, so the recommendation is to use a ceramic or a stainless steel dish to wash it daily so it's nice and clean, not to use the plastic bowls for our food or our water, and make sure that the dog has plenty of nice fresh water that's not frozen so that they, uh, and if it's an outdoor water dish, of course, it's even important to wash it more often than once a day so that the leaves and the other stuff that falls into the bowl stay, uh, stay out and the dog gets a fresh water supply. Good question. Jeff in Waukesha uh, couldn't stay with us but wonders, his dog likes taking sticks apart but not eating them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Is that okay? Yeah. 
Yeah, as long as they're not ingesting anything, I don't think it's really worrisome. Um, every now and then we'll have a dog that gets something stuck in their teeth or across the roof of their mouth. That's pretty rare. And sticks are great, you know, greatly enjoyed toys by many dogs. And if you throw it and the dog brings it back or the dog chews it up and doesn't ingest pieces of it, then you're fine. Uh, I, I think those are those are absolutely fine as long as they're non-toxic plants. So do be careful that there's nothing sharp and there's nothing toxic about that stick. My friend's dog uh, likes to uh, take the bark off trees, but then eats the bark. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and you know there are dogs that want roughage in their diet, and I think sometimes we forget that. So I feed fruits and vegetables at my house. It should not exceed 10% of the dog's daily dietary intake. But other than grapes and raisins, most fruits and vegetables are absolutely fine, absolutely safe. They love carrots, broccoli, lettuce, uh, asparagus, and it's a great way for those like the stalk of the broccoli that's a little tougher than you really want to eat, but you can cut it off and feed it to the dog, the asparagus stems, the the leaves of the lettuce. I mean, my dogs love this stuff. So giving them some roughage in their diet will probably reduce the likelihood that they're out grazing in the lawn or eating the, the bark or the sticks or some of those things because dogs do have a need for some of those um, not only textural things but nutritional things. So let, let them have fruits and veggies. Uh, it's good for them, you know, carrots, apples, bananas. Uh, they're, they're great snacks for dogs. Guy in Woodstock, Illinois, is up next. Uh, Guy, thanks for calling. What's on your mind? Hi. I have a nine-month-old wired-haired griffon, which is a a, a hunting dog. Mm-hmm. And, and nine months old, you said. Yes. It's in the house because it's very social. But I do a lot outside with it. And my question is about feeding. Right now, I feed the dog three times a day, morning, noon, and night. I feed it one cup. I do use Purina Pro Plan for dogs two years and younger. That's all it's been fed. Should I go to two twice a day, as a lot of people recommend, or three times a day? Is that okay? <laughs> Three times a day is fine as long as he's not overweight, and a nine-month-old puppy is probably not having a weight issue. I think all dogs should be fed at least twice a day. I don't think one meal a day is sufficient for dogs. I think that's too much food in their stomach at one time. Um, They tend to gulp down their food too quickly. We run the risk of bloat, um, which is gastric dilatation and volvulus. We run the risk of just gluttony. So I think two meals a day is great. If you can do three and it's sustainable with your lifestyle, why not, as long as the dog isn't overweight? Um, so I, I think what you're doing is fine. I put the food down. I don't give them more than 20 minutes with the food. And if it's not eaten by that period of time, then it gets picked up. And very quickly, dogs learn to eat in meals. And that meal feeding helps with housebreaking. They're more predictable when they're going to have a stool if they're being fed a meal um, instead of just free choice. So I think what you're doing is fine. I think the food he's on is fine. I don't see any particular reason to change off of the food or off the feeding schedule and I like those diets for the young dogs because they really are meant to, to sustain those more active years when the dogs are much busier than they do uh, when they become older. What about treats? Thanks, uh, Guy, for calling. What about treats um, for your puppy? I, I, any limits on those? Right. You don't want the, the treats to exceed 10% of their dietary intake or else we unbalance those very carefully balanced diets that our pet food companies have created for us. And, again, I use lots of 
snacks for the fruits and vegetables for my dogs. I use cooked vegetables. If I'm making a stock, I use fresh vegetables if I have those. So I use a lot of those. I typically don't buy a lot of treats for my dogs. If you do treats, you want to be really careful with the salt and the fat and the calorie intake. I use Cheerios. Um, there are three Cheerios to one calorie. I had a staff member count the number of Cheerios in a cup one day, and we calculated it. That was a pretty tedious job. And I flavor those with liquid smoke, so I seal them in a jar, put liquid smoke in there, and then you can have very tiny little low-calorie, tasty little treats for housebreaking, for dog training. Um, a lot of people use string cheese. A lot of people use hot dogs. There's a lot of good treats you can use for the dogs that are if you're going to do a training session, you need to have a really delicious treat, housebreaking or other kind of training, because the dog needs to be paid for that work that they're doing. They're just going to go out in the yard and go, you know, out in 20 below weather in a snowstorm just because they're supposed to. You need to pay them well for those trips outside. So I think good training treats are really important. I think less high-value treats are fine if you're just going to give them a snack before you go to bed or whatever you want to do. Um, I use a lot of ginger snaps, to be really honest. I use cheese balls for dogs. So my dogs do get human-quality treats. They make good dog treats as well. But I like the fruits, vegetables, ginger snaps, peanut butter, cheese, spray cheese, those kinds of things are, are the treats that my dogs typically typically will get. And I, I, have, a, I have a lot of dogs. I'm not going <laughs> to say I have a lot of dogs. <laughs> well, by the way, uh, as long as we're talking about food, uh, food allergies – are there signs of food allergies or intolerances in dogs? Or maybe yeah, some... and I think, yeah, I think there's a lot more intolerances than we're really able to recognize. It can be really tough to figure out what the dog is reacting to. So if we see year-round allergies with itchy ears, licking the feet, skin breaking out, those kinds of things in there year-round, a food allergy very well may be a component of that. If it's seasonal, it's more likely to be pollens, molds, grass, tree pollens, those kinds of things, ragweed, um, goldenrod, those those kinds of allergies. But if you're seeing a year-round problem with skin and ears, I think you should talk to your veterinarian about a food elimination diet. They can be tricky to do, and if you buy the food over-the-counter at the pet store or online, it can be really hard to figure out what components are in there, and oftentimes those are not the best foods for us to try to use for a food elimination diet. We oftentimes need to go to a prescription food. And even if you only have to feed that for a 12-week period of time to determine if the dog has a food allergy, they're a little expensive, but that 12 weeks can be invaluable in figuring out what they can tolerate, what they can't tolerate. And, of course, they require really strict control that the dog doesn't get anything off the table during that time period. So if grandma lives with you and she forgets that she's not supposed to let the dog lick out her ice cream bowl or the kids drop food off the high chair all those things can be really difficult. So a food elimination diet is really valuable in determining if there's a food allergy, but please, please, please work with your veterinarian because if you have gone through a number of different protein and carbohydrate sources trying randomly to find something that you can buy at the store, you may eliminate some of the choices you have down the road. So work with your vet. Um, a lot of veterinarians do a very good job with this. There are veterinary dermatologists that do a super job with food allergies. So if you suspect that, vomiting, diarrhea, skin problems, uh, ear problems, then work with a veterinary professional to figure out what food is going to be your best in that trial period to see what they're allergic to. Uh, speaking of food, Jeff in Fox Lake has a question. Let's go there. Hi, Jeff. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I guess it, it's just a general question. Uh, do eggs... 
eggs have a place of a dog diet or, or like one egg a day for a large breed. Yeah, eggs, eggs, eggs are a great protein source, a great fat source. I like eggs a lot. The recommendation, though, is to not feed too many raw eggs because they can cause a biotin deficiency. They can bind to biotin and cause that uh, vitamin deficiency. So cooked eggs are great. Uh, limited raw eggs are, are okay, but, you know, we always worry about salmonella when we're feeding a raw egg product. So uh, I'm a big fan of eggs, if, if, especially if the dog has a particular nutritional need. Those can be a really wonderful protein source. You see a lot of puppies, and vet vis- visits can be stressful for dogs of all ages. How do you prepare your puppy to have a productive visit at your place or another vet's place? Sure. And we provide lots of food treats in our in our office. We use, like I said, cheese balls, ginger snaps, squeezed cheese, peanut butter. I use marshmallow cream, the marshmallow fluff. Um, we put those on mats on the exam table, washable mats, so that the dog can then they can go through the dishwasher. And of course, there's no cross contamination, and that makes it really fun for the dogs. If the dog won't eat those kinds of treats, um, then you can bring your own to the veterinary visit, and most veterinarians are willing to allow that as long as the dog is not there for a fasting blood test or for surgery. So do be sensitive to the fact that some dogs have to have those limitations put on them. But if your vet doesn't provide something, bring along, or, or if the menu at your vet clinic isn't what your dog is preferring, then bring along their favorite treats. I have dogs that will only eat chicken or they'll only eat a certain brand of peanut butter, so I understand that. I respect that. So come prepared so that you can make it as positive an experience as possible when they're giving the vaccination, drawing the blood, doing the microchip. Um, anything that requires some restraint or some injections should be as positive an experience as possible. I want your dog to drag you through the front door going into the vet clinic thinking that they're going into a restaurant and not you know, spread eagles across the door saying, I'm not going in there. That's a terrible place. Every time I go in, they stick me. So you want to make it as fun as you possibly can. So keep it positive, keep it upbeat, and take a giant treat bag with you if your vet can't provide adequate treats for your dog. <laughs> oh, I, I, I love it. Uh, Dr. Greer, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking time to be with us today. I really appreciate it. I hope you can do this again. Oh, I'd love to. It's always fun talking to your people that are listening to us. Their their questions are always the best. Thank you. Dr. Marty Greer, veterinarian who founded Veterinary Village, a small animal clinic in Lamira, Wisconsin, where she specializes in canine pediatrics and reproduction, graduated from Marquette Law School and is a partner at Animal Legal Resources, where she practices part-time. Pretty cool. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow we'll take a look at the paddling season with Darren Bush and a look at Canucopia. In the meantime, stay with us. Lots in store on the Ideas Network. I'm Larry Miller.